1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Myra Bradwell the right to practice law specifically because she was a woman. Ms. Bradwell apprenticed, passed the Illinois bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, but the decision to deny her the right to practice law rested on the idea that women were, quote, never contemplated, unquote, to be members of the bar. Things have changed since then, but not without the sacrifice and fortitude of female lawyers. In our first two seasons, we met with a dozen or so female jurists who talked about their backgrounds and paths to get on the bench. This season, we'll expand on those stories and interview lawyers throughout the state of Florida who are trailblazers in their practice areas and role models for male and female attorneys everywhere. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. Our first two seasons of the podcast focused on trailblazers in the judiciary. I want to now turn to leaders in our local and state governments. According to the Florida Bar Directory, there are over 760 lawyers who work for or lead local and state agencies. The state of Florida has approximately 48 agencies, 10 led by females. In this episode, I have the honor of introducing Melanie Griffin, the Secretary of the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation, also known as DBPR. Prior to becoming secretary in January 2022, Secretary Griffin was in private practice representing clients in business litigation and employment law. Secretary Griffin went to Florida State University for her undergraduate MBA and law degrees and continues to be an active alum. She has a history of leadership with the Florida Bar, including serving as the president of the Young Lawyers Bar Association and being a fellow of the Florida Bar Foundation. She's been awarded numerous professional and business awards, including the Florida Bar Young Lawyers Division Outstanding Woman Lawyer Achievement Award, the Florida Bar's Mentor of the Year Award, and the FSU College of Law Alumni Association Service Award. Welcome, Secretary Griffin, and thanks for joining us on Never Contemplated. Thank you for having me. What an honor. Oh, we're lucky to have you. I know that you've done a number of interviews and you had your maybe your own podcast, but uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with you and your background, I want to start at the beginning. Um, I know that you're a native Floridian. Tell us about where you grew up. You're right. Native Floridian, born and raised in Bradenton, Florida, and love Florida's Southwest Gulf Coast. So beautiful down there. Got to live there for about 18 years before coming to Florida State and got three degrees here at the university. So my finance, MBA, and JD. And during that time, had the opportunity to work quite a bit in undergrad and grad school for the legislature, the executive branch, one of our state agencies. I think we'll be talking about that a little bit more in this podcast. And then ultimately went into private practice for a statewide business law firm and got to work with several business clients throughout my career, as well as doing some employment law um, and then the litigation side for them. So um, I ended, I guess, my journey before becoming secretary by having my own small company called Spread Your Sunshine, where I made inspirational products and also did a lot of keynote speaking and corporate trainings. And so that's kind of the Reader's Digest nutshell of how I got here today. Well, we're going to break all that down and I'm going to go over all of that with you. But before we get to your law school, tell me a little bit about growing up in Bradenton and what kind of student were you? 
I was definitely the, I'm a recovering perfectionist, as I like to say. So um, was not valedictorian, but did really well, you know, top 10% of the high school class in school um, and definitely um, learned a lot from my mom, who's my number one mentor. She and I were together my whole life because my parents got divorced when I was super young and it was just mom and me. And she's a social worker by background. And so learned a lot about empathy and community work and how to serve others through her. And that was probably one of my passions from an early age that was a foundation for things that I've done later in my career was to get involved in mentorship at an early age. There was something called Manatines near my house growing up that had a large mentoring program, which was kind of on the cusp at that point in time. I think mentoring is so prevalent these days, but um, I'm an 80s baby. So back in like the 90s, I don't know that mentorship was nearly as a commonly used word, but had the opportunity to get involved in those programs from an early age. Well, I guess the manatees, manatees yes. was a play on manatees. Well, your mom is a social worker. Were there any people in your life at that point that were attorneys or why did you go to law school? No one was an attorney. I dressed up as an attorney when I was eight years old for Halloween. I don't know what gave me the idea. And maybe one of the things I left out, I, I, I'm probably sure I was maybe a little bit more of on the serious side of being a kid. But I mean, at eight years old, I decided I was too old to go trick-or-treating. I handed out the candy. I had my briefcase, my fake glasses, the whole nine. Um, and so that was kind of a seed that was for whatever reason, I don't know how the bug got planted, but was instilled from an early age and obviously ended up following through on that then in grad school. What did you do when you came to FSU? What did you, what did you graduate with in undergrad? I had a finance degree and a big part of that, I have to thank the FSU Career Center. When I graduated, I went to school, I believe, with um, at least my first year-ish done. And when I graduated, I had over 150 credits, which I'm not even sure that you need that many to graduate these days. Um, I had no double majors, no minors. I think, you know, I had just gone through and taken so many different courses. They actually kicked me out of the Career Center at one point. Um, I was a Spanish major, an international affairs major, a business major, you know, pre-law, political science science, English, like I tried it all. And I think part of it is that one of my, uh, I think, positives or negatives is I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. I've always had a myriad of interests. And then part of it was a lack of confidence that I had several of my friends in school that had trouble with business calculus. And so the person in the career center said to me, um, just go get your first C in your life. Like, what is the big deal? Um, you know, like you're not going to fail. Um, that, you know, that's not probably what's actually going to happen there. Um, I got a hundred in the class. So it was, you know, the exact opposite of, you know, here's my fear that I'm not even be able to pass this course. They prompt me to take it. And I was, you know, a perfect candidate for it and really just applaud them for giving me the courage to do that and pursue business, which has been a foundation for my legal as well as, um, you know, the rest of my career. Well, they say if you learn for fun, you you learn better. So right. maybe that's true. I'm not sure everybody's doing cal business count for fun, but I, I was. So it was interesting. <laughs> And so you end up uh, with a graduate degree. Did you work during undergrad? You, you, you talked about working in undergrad and law school. I did. I went to Florida State really purposefully. I participated in the American Legion program between my junior and senior years of high school. For those who are not familiar with it, the American Legion brings a couple hundred um, girls and then separately boys and does two different 
weeks with them creating mock governments. And so through that, I was elected. I'm putting that in air quotes. I know you all can't see me, but I was elected to the Florida House of Representatives. And I sat in that chair and thought, I am meant to be in Tallahassee in some way. And so when it came time for school, very purposely went to Florida State, knowing it was the capital. And about week two, there was a volunteer fair in the union. And I walked up to the person in the union who was actually there from the Florida House and said, I came to school to work for you. And I think they were a little taken aback. And I repeated, you know, at least in my mind, this is how the story goes. I, you know, repeated myself and they said, well, okay, then come on down. And so worked in the Florida house the freshman year that I was in college. And then um, fortunately, my sophomore year, I met another student and he said, I want you to have my job. And I said, well, what do you do? He said, I'm the staff assistant to Lieutenant Governor. And I said, well, that sounds amazing. So I went and worked um, for the executive office of the governor my junior and senior years as the staff assistant to then Lieutenant Governor Brogan. And then ultimately, went over to British Parliament and finished my collegiate undergrad career there as a research assistant in British Parliament through an internship program that Florida State offered, which was just amazing. So is that the London Oxford program? Yes. Yes. And they allow, and I think most students traditionally take classes, but they have a handful of people that go over and actually work in either private companies or obviously I got the security clearance to work for the government, but you can work in a myriad of places over there. And it was such a phenomenal opportunity. Well, that sounds incredible. And it sounds like fun and you get to go be with a bunch of uh, Brits. It was a great time. Yeah. Tell us what you liked about FSU Law School. Everything. Who doesn't love Florida State? I've, I'm obviously super passionate as a triple grad. I loved the collegiality. And to that, in some ways, I didn't, I'm saying this, I had a different journey than some folks having done the dual degree program. So in some ways, I didn't get to go to law school. What I mean by that is I went my first year. And then because after that, you spend so much time in the College of Business as a dual degree student, I also did a full-time externship one of my years over in the house again, um, working on a um, House Speakers Fellowship for the House of Representatives. So my point is, I didn't get the traditional full three years there that others did. But what I remember from my first year of being immersed there is just the collegiality of the sections and people that I'm still really good friends with to this day. And sometimes you hear about law schools where people are ripping out the page of books or won't help you. I think Florida State is the exact opposite culture. It's such a gracious, warm, welcoming culture where there's so many wonderful then students who are lifelong professionals and friends. Well, I know you're really active with the alumni. Now, I heard that you were one of the first students to do a dual program with the law and MBA. Is that true? Do you know? I have no idea, but I'll, I'll take it if it is. <laughs> <laughs> Was it a setup program or is that something you kind of put together? I didn't put it together. I remember it being a setup program. And I remember maybe there maybe being one or two other students that were on the same track, but it wasn't like there was a large class of us. I'll put it that way. So there was a handful of us that maybe um, went that route. Well, tell us what was the difference between a law school class and a business class? It was fascinating. So similar to doing really well in business calc, my mind is definitely black and white. So with the business classes, again, I mean, I could practically grade my own tests. And what I mean by that is when you complete, you know, quantitative statistics or calculus, I mean, if you're good at it, you can do the test backwards and forwards. You know, if you do the problems twice, you'll know probably more than likely what it is you're getting on that test even before you walk out of the room. Law school, the idea of having gray areas and issue spotting and figuring out theories of a case, even when your facts aren't necessarily in your favor and good, that was really challenging for me. I felt like both as a law school student and then ultimately as an attorney. So they were 
different animals in terms of how they were graded, what people were looking for, and just, you know, the subject matter in general. So when you got out of law school and got your MBA, what was your first job? My first job was clerking for Dean Mead. That was during my time in law school. I did a business externship, but then ended with a law clerkship at Dean Mead. And then I ultimately worked there for 13 years, the first eight as an associate. And then the last five, I was an equity shareholder and then the um, branch office managing partner for their then newly formed Tampa office. I had founded it in Tampa and worked on that project for five years. Where did you do your internship? Because I don't think, were they in Tallahassee at that time? I know they have an office now. No, I worked in the Orlando headquarters. Yeah. So they they brought it on, yes, to your point, their Tallahassee office in around 2013. I got to, because of my background, when they came onto the firm, then I was able to not only work in Orlando and Tampa, but then support Tallahassee office with some of my background from working here in government. Well, I know you are a first-generation lawyer, and we touched on the fact that you helped some of your classmates through calculus. I know that you speak a lot about imposter syndrome. What is imposter syndrome? In the easiest sense of the word, it's the feeling that you're not enough, that you don't deserve a seat at the table because of a myriad of factors. And what I think is interesting about it is when you really dig into the research, it although can be associated with women, impacts both women and men, maybe even men more. They're just not as apt to talk about it um, for a lot of reasons. And it also can manifest in several different ways. So I think the most typical way that we oftentimes hear about is this feeling of I'm not enough, but there's actually five different types of imposter syndrome. So for me, I don't necessarily suffer from the most common type. Oftentimes I'll think, yes, I'm enough to at least get a seat at the table, but then all of a sudden panic rushes in. So I have the seat at the table, I achieve that, but I start thinking, I'm going to fail. Why am I here? What was I thinking when I applied for that? And I think just being able to express that and talk about it is such a healthy thing. Well, I think that it's not just women, like you said. I Mm -hmm. think a lot of first-generation, first-time students that go to college, first-time law students, a lot of immigrants probably feel the same way. So what are some of the ways that lawyers can get over imposter syndrome? Some of the top ways that I work on with groups or people that I work with, one is, and some of them are in your control and some of them aren't, but oftentimes, and I like to talk about this as well, I'm so glad you asked, because even if you don't suffer from it, you probably have employees who do if you're on the managerial side. And so a couple of the things that come to mind, one is if you have a competitive atmosphere. So, and if you think about our law firms, we are trying to be perfect. We're trying to sometimes, you know, compete for various positions or clients that can certainly foster imposter syndrome. So being cognizant of that, the more that you can have an open door policy or a mentorship program where people feel confident in terms of asking questions and not looking like they're not competent at their job or they're um, not a bright, intelligent person, that can be really helpful. And letting people know that I love the fact that you use first time because oftentimes imposter syndrome is not a lifelong sentence. It can rear its ugly head once or multiple times throughout your career. And it can be tracked to when you don't see someone who looks like you at the table and or it's your first time at that table and you're not confident. And so just letting people know that is a common thing to experience or recognizing it is common to experience and knowing to seek mentorship is such an empowering tool to have so that you can work through those feelings and become really successful and confident in your job. Well, I was going to ask you this later, but we've mentioned it uh, numerous times about mentoring and mentorship 
who was a mentor to you besides your mom? I say mom, mom is so easy. The second one that I think is easy, especially sitting here at Florida Bar headquarters recording this, is that Renee Thompson and Sean Desmond are two presidents of the Florida Bar Young Lawyers Division, on which I ultimately served, who were presidents before I was. And I was fortunate to come into contact with them. And they are two of the not only brightest, most intelligent people who just know the answer to seemingly every question I could ever posed to them, but they also are two of the most positive people I've ever met and really taught me a lot about positive leadership. I feel like I was already on that track, but I think at Florida State, there was, and I continue to see this with the students I work with, there can really be an accountability aspect to what they work on. And that's important to hold people accountable. But sometimes I've seen a trajectory where that can be done in a somewhat negative way in the university setting. And so having Sean and Renee open my mind to how you could positively hold people accountable and lead, which is so, just so transformative. I want to switch now to your present position as secretary of DBPR. Tell us a little bit about what DBPR is. DBPR is the department that licenses and regulates a lot of businesses in the state. And I use a lot purposefully is that this is not a perfect science because we overlap with some of our sister state agencies. But generally speaking, if you're not a lawyer listening to this podcast and you are not a healthcare professional, like a doctor or nurse, and you have a business that has to be licensed in Florida, more than likely you're coming through our doors. So what that means is that we license about 1.8 million licensees throughout the state and over 30 fields of industry that range from accountants to engineers to construction workers to hair braiders, cosmetologists, you name it. We're working with all of them. And how many employees does GPBR have? About 1,600. So it was a big jump from the largest law firm I had worked for prior to making that move. You'd have to know a little bit about all of these, or do you have different divisions? We have different divisions. And so you certainly call on the division directors and deputy directors as your leadership team who are the core substantive knowledge experts. And so there's no expectation that as the agency head that you would be up to speed on all of those issues. At the same time, you're going to learn a lot about a lot of different subjects in Florida. There's just no way around it because at the end of the day, you're accountable to so many different stakeholders, including the legislature and the professionals who work in those industries. So you don't want to come to a meeting and seem like you're unprepared and unknowledgeable of what it is that they do on a daily basis. Well, I know from being a judge at DOA that I see a lot of cases uh, that DPPR is, I guess, for lack of a better word, prosecuting um, against licenses. Tell us what a lawyer would do at DPPR if they were working there. So a lawyer can work in a couple of different aspects. And one of the main ones that you raised is that if we have a licensed professional, just like a lawyer, that we um, have a, a... system, as most people know, that if there's something that comes up that's questionable about a lawyer's activity, then they get reported to a grievance committee or maybe to the Florida Bar, and that's worked through. Similarly, with our professional business licenses, there can be reports that they didn't do the work in a fashion that was acceptable to the person that hired them, or there could be some other unscrupulous activity and they can be reported. So a lot of times those cases against the licensee will get worked through and ultimately could come up to DOA. We also are always on the lookout for unlicensed activity, which didn't mean nearly as much to me before sitting in this role. And so I'll use the example of, we talked about hair braiders and cosmetologists. When I sat down in the chair at the salon 
I just accepted as a truth that that person would have been licensed if they needed to be. I never was looking on the wall to make sure that was the case. Um, there are a lot of, unfortunately, unlicensed actors in the state, especially following periods of, say, disaster like a hurricane. So we're always on the lookout for those bad actors and then taking actions against them when appropriate, whether we can within our own walls or sometimes partnering with local law enforcement agencies as well. And so attorneys would, of course, be helping to look over those cases and see if it meets the elements and, you know, in what way the department needs to work those cases through. And then if there's another, say, type of fine or action, we regulate, say, alcohol and tobacco. We collect taxes then for the state. If someone's delinquent in paying their taxes or hasn't made that payment, we're going to get our team involved. And so there's a lot of really interesting, honestly, complex cases that come through the department that is so interesting for our team to be able to work on in the legal field. If I'm a new attorney, why would I want to come work with DPPR? At least one reason I can think of is work-life balance that I don't know that you always get at a private law firm. And certainly there are those that are wonderful that offer that lifestyle as well. But you do get to work on a lot of complex, interesting cases, oftentimes in a myriad of subjects. And oftentimes at the department, you are placed with a division, but that also is not necessarily where you have to stay your whole career. So you may get to learn a lot about, say, condominiums, timeshares, and mobile homes, which is one of our divisions. And then you decide you want to learn about alcohol and tobacco. And if a position opens up, you can easily switch divisions. And when you think about the different businesses that are present in the state of Florida, say, um, you know, our large hotel chains, or our large grocers, they're all in some way licensed by the state. So you're working with not only complex issues, but big players, their things matter to obviously them and to our citizens. And at the same time, I think there does tend to be a work-life balance that isn't always present in some of the private firm opportunities. Well, let's talk about that. I know that you worked at a big firm for pretty much all your your lawyerly life before becoming secretary. What made you decide to put your hat in the ring to switch over to government or being an appointed official? I had realized a couple of years before that that I loved practicing law, but that and I would, felt like I was a good lawyer, but that I didn't think that I had a unique skill set, that I felt like there are thousands of good, wonderful lawyers in our state and that they were maybe more passionate about the practice of law than what I was. And so for me, I realized I wanted to make it a positive impact on the world. And I wasn't sure that I was going to do it being a lawyer any longer. And so it was such a wonderful foundation for what I am doing today. But I had already kind of splintered off. I went of counsel, um, stepped back from being an equity partner at at D. Mead and ultimately ended my legal or full-time legal journey at the Shoemaker Law Firm in Tampa, and they have other locations. And so got to go of counsel and um, transition my book of business, as well as found a small business, Spread Your Sunshine, where I could work on things like imposter syndrome and helping people through those difficult challenges, which was really uplifting. And around that time, had a mentor who was involved in state government that called and said, I could see the next step of your journey being as an agency head, you might be a good fit. Can I tell you what that looks like? And if you're interested, walk you through what a game plan to get there might be. And wow, what a gift to have someone help you lay out that map and identify an opportunity and help you get there, which I think is one of our superpowers we can share with others and help them identify their op opportunities too. Well, let's talk about Spread Your Sunshine. Um, I know you founded that while you were practicing, you were still practicing law. What was that company it goes with the theme, I feel like, of our episode here today with mentorship. At the time, 
mentoring had become almost a third full-time job. I was practicing law full-time. I was involved extracurricularly with the Florida Bar and other organizations like we've briefly touched on. And then through that, I was so passionate about connecting with peers and younger students or professionals that then I had this cadre of mentees as well. And it was becoming more and more difficult to not only then find the time that I wanted to to answer their questions, but I also realized at the end of the day that although they were uniquely phrased questions, they elicited a core set of answers. And I thought, if I can get that online or electronic, I can share this. I can help even more people. I can scale that and then not necessarily cut out the one-on-one mentoring, but to help them with their niche questions that might be different while then helping a broader base of people. And so that was really the impetus behind Spread Your Sunshine. Well, I know that your mentees were not just lawyers, that they were really entrepreneurs and business people, young business people. Tell us about how you helped them and what they needed. It was interesting in the sense that a lot of things are agnostic. So we talked, for instance, about imposter syndrome. An entrepreneur is going to have the same fears and anxiety that maybe a lawyer would. But what really kind of shaped the journey at the beginning of Spread Your Sunshine is that when I had the opportunity to truly lift it off the ground and start working on it more as a business was at the end of 2019. And we all know what happened at the beginning of 2020 when the coronavirus hit. Well, at that point in time, I had this unique intersectionality of being a trained business lawyer who was connected to the entrepreneurial community and no longer had the full-time practice of law tying me up. And so I became kind of a mini expert on the um, PPP, which was a loan to help our employers continue to give payroll to their, um, the Paycheck Protection Act to give payroll to their employees, as well as the EIDL. I will not remember what that stands for, the acronym, other than it was a emergency business loan that was available to our small businesses. And so I was uniquely positioned to not only understand those laws, but then to get the message out to the entrepreneurial world. And so that was a completely different goal than what I originally had for Spread Your Sunshine in terms of working on, you know, fear of failure, imposter syndrome. But here I found myself, for instance, at the Florida Bar, we did an electronic podcast and got the information out that people needed about those programs. And I think we had one of the largest, if not the largest attendance that the Florida bars ever had online. We had over 2,000 registrants that really needed that information. What an opportunity to be able to get something to someone when they really need the help most. Well, I know before the podcast we were talking and one of the things they don't teach you in law school is how to start a business and essentially solo practitioners, people who put out their shingle to practice law are really entrepreneurs in themselves. Tell us a little bit about the importance of things that they don't teach you in law school for small businesses that, you know, small law firms and solo practitioners. That's such a brilliant question and observation because Thank you. your point, <laughs> yes, I was like, yes, we have one of our most brilliant judges here. And so um, I think that's so poignant because even with our larger firm practitioners, unless you go to work for a law firm where you are solely there to be the number two, you have someone who's a rainmaker and they're just going to feed you all their work because they need the help. Most even private firms that are larger are going to be looking to you to bring in business eventually. It may not be year one, but if you're sitting there at year 10 and you've brought in zero clients, it's probably going to be a problem for you. And so although we don't think like this as lawyers oftentimes, nor get training on it, I think 
thinking about ourselves as many businesses you really are in terms of what does the marketing look like or how are you going to make your profit center? What is your game plan for meeting your billable hours? A lot of those really are um, business questions or logic questions that are going to make you more successful, more than likely as a private practice lawyer, or even if you're in public service thinking about that, if you're looking for promotional opportunities, how am I going to position this in a way that I am the ripe candidate for advancement is just such a smart exercise to go through. Well, I know that when I was in private practice, I knew my I knew the law and I knew how to litigate the law, but I would just give away my advice for free. I could never convert questions into clients. Um, so I think that's a big thing that they don't teach you in law school and that you really need to to learn from either have an inherent personality to, to bring in that business or to learn it from somewhere. So where can people go to like learn those skills? A lot of times, I think there's so much free advice online these days, which is awesome. I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully we're prompting you, right? So we're a piece of the puzzle here today. And then, you know, one of the things from an entrepreneur podcaster that I listen to is that, you know, she's always talking about Google and she's like, it's 2023, so I'm not giving you rocket science advice. But there are so many questions. There are so many, um, you know, informational sites that are available just through a quick Google search or going on, you know, your Android or smartphone and putting a, um, a question into podcasts and hearing someone that's talked about it before. I've also heard of people, you know, in the entrepreneurial space or business space will oftentimes ask about getting an MBA and it isn't necessarily recommended because they don't need all those courses, but they may need a couple of specific ones. And so where this is applicable to lawyers is that if you feel uncomfortable, say in the marketing space, or you want to know how to put out the best content for webcasting or podcasting or vlogging, you can take a marketing course and that's available to you right at your local college or online. So I think there are so many wonderful resources that we can access now that can act as um, a guide and let you learn while you're still learning to be a lawyer. Well, I want to switch over now. Um, I'm sure being secretary of DBBR is a, is a full-time job, but I also know you're a mom and that you're just as passionate about being a mom and that you love your dog and your family. Tell us a little bit about how you became a mom and what it means to you now. So my husband and I, Mike, of 14 years, if you're listening to this in 2023, we um, adopted our son, Maverick, from a adoption agency. I want to give a little plug for Jeannie Tate, who's one of our awesome lawyers here in the state. And so went through her adoption agency and were able to be present at his birth in 2017. So he just turned five and is a bundle of joy, definitely a spitfire, and getting ready to go to kindergarten. And it was just such a great experience to be able to help a younger couple, his birth parents, who really wanted to make sure that he was loved and cared for, but didn't have the capacity to do that themselves. And so we had about 10 days notice. And I will thank this person publicly, but Kim Hosley, who is a past Seafall and Fall president, our Women Lawyers president, was the person who connected us that knew that Mike and I were looking into adopting and connected us with this couple that she knew from her home area on the East Coast of Florida. And we were just so grateful to be able to enter their lives and to have this connection and ultimately bring Maverick into our family. While we talk a lot about work-life balance on this podcast, I know that you as secretary travel all over the state, but especially your home in, in Tampa, Tallahassee. Um, how do you manage to, to balance that? 
or to make it work. I don't know if it's a balance. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have a definition of balance that I do think helps a lot of people is that I like to look at balance in the short term, long term. And what I mean by that is I don't look at balance on a daily basis. And so for instance, today I'm here recording this podcast with you. I'm in Tallahassee. And as you noted, my son is in school in Tampa. And so if you were to give me a grade in just today as being a mom, you're probably not going to give me an A. And I don't mean that you actually think I'm a bad mom, but I, I don't get an A today. I'm not necessarily spending that, you know, immense quality time with him beyond, you know, some FaceTime calls throughout the day. But now you flip to this weekend and I really make it a priority then at night and on the weekends when I am home that he gets 100% to the extent possible of my attention and we're doing meaningful things together, like playing board games or going to the birthday parties or the park to play. And so I like to look at things, whether, you know, you choose a two-week period, a quarter, a year, but is your life in balance over that period of time. That's such a better snapshot. You're not going to get an A in every area of your life every day. Where I think you can get an A in every area of your life is over a period. And if you're not, then it's not a life sentence. You can make adjustments and think, okay, maybe I should be spending some additional time with my faith community or community service or whatever it is that you've prioritized as being important for that season. And I bring up the word season because I think it's another thing is that, you know, right now in this season, I'm not exercising. Um, and I bring that up only because previous to this, I had this huge, um, you know, platform where I was exercising practically every day and had, you know, the number of workouts I wanted to get. But when I got appointed secretary, I thought, I'm going to get my steps every day. And that's about the best I can do. Doesn't mean I won't get back to it. And so when you think about things like that of, you know, I can't do everything at one time, it doesn't mean I can't get back to it or add it later. I think it's a really healthy way to look at things. I think that's like flexible priorities. You just, yes, it may not be a priority today, but it is a priority in your life. Absolutely. Well, besides being a mom and being secretary and being involved in so many community uh, groups, what do you do when you're not, you know, just to let loose or, or, you know, when you're not exercising? <laughs> Well, yeah, yes, I've given that up, um, is, you know, I will say to be transparent because I do want people to understand that those kind of are the things I get to do these days for the most part is be secretary and be a mom and a wife. And that's about all that's on the radar. So I do think that like what quote unquote gives in my life these days, other than exercise is personal time. There are little, you know, pockets of rays of sunshine where I might sneak in, you know, like a massage or something, you know, here or there, but that's pretty rare and far between because I have prioritized what I want to work on right now. But in other times I have loved, you know, being outside, running, exercising. My husband and I have been to wine country a few times. We love California. Um, we love going to the beaches in the summer. So, um, you know, those, and, and we still do go um, to the beach over the summer with this job. But some of that has fallen, like I said, a bit by the wayside, but still are things that we enjoy doing and look forward to when this opportunity has been such a blessing to be able to serve in this role and help others unfortunately comes to an end, then we'll be able to get back to some of those other things that we enjoy too. Well, I, I wish you well in, in getting back to all those things. Before we leave, I want to ask you one final question. If you had any advice for a new attorney, what would it be? to recognize your own talents. When I first started practicing, I mistook the fact that I was new as somewhat meaning I wasn't talented at anything in the practice of law. And over time, what I realized is that I had a real knack, for instance, for connecting with people that maybe my senior partner didn't have with our clients. And so just because you don't yet have your legal acumen to the highest point that'll get in your legal career doesn't mean you can't contribute in your own meaningful way. And helping you recognize that, I think will also then help you 
address what we talked about earlier in terms of imposter syndrome, a lack of confidence, and let you know that you really are a valued member of the team. Well, thank you so much for, for coming here and recording this with us today. Stay safe. Thanks for having me. I want to thank the sound engineer, Clay Shaw, for making us sound great, and Katie Young and Rebecca Bandy from the Latimer Center for Professionalism for keeping us on the air. If you'd like more information about the Department of Business and Professional Regulation or Secretary Griffin, you can follow them online or on Twitter and other social media outlets. Don't forget to grab the CLE number for the episode under this posting. 